Hello, and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm James. I'm Nick. And I'm Naomi. And together, we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge. In this second series, we're talking about futures. And in this episode, we're asking the question, what are the possible futures for artificial intelligence? We're going to cover everything from animism to Hello Barbie, from algorithmic bias to the robo-apocalypse, and from threats to democracy to Jake Gyllenhaal. So, who are we talking to in this episode? Well, we talked to a social and digital anthropologist. Hi, I'm Beth. I'm the Junior Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge, and I'm primarily an anthropologist. A philosopher and cognitive scientist. Hi, I'm John. I'm a philosopher and cognitive scientist based at the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence in the University of Cambridge. And a futurist in residence. Hi, I'm Richard. I'm futurist in residence at the Judge School at Cambridge. As usual, we began by asking our guests to tell us about their research. I'm interested in how machine learning algorithms do what they do, how we can get them to explain themselves so that humans understand them, and whether they're clever enough for us to be able to trust them to the extent that we do. Um, I guess I'm just curious about where all where we're all going. Um, I've got a particular interest in the visualization of ideas and arguments, though. Uh, yes, uh, I'd say I think about what you think about machines that might think. I'm going to kick off with the first question, and this one's for Beth. Um, so kind of before we do a deep dive and really get into how we'll live and work alongside AI, um, we just want to start really simple and ask, what is AI to begin with? Yeah, AI is a really interesting term because it both encapsulates the actual object that we're talking about, but also the field of research and the various aspects within it. So it's an attempt to replicate human capacities and capabilities in terms of what we call intelligence artificially in a machine scenario. And that covers lots of different aspects like facial recognition uh, software, uh, natural language processing, uh, deep learning techniques. But I'm also quite interested in how it's received in public discourse. So what we might think of AI in a scholarly sense and technological sense might be very different to the public conception of what AI is. John, can I get you to come in here to that? Because you mentioned machine learning in your sort of tweet length summary. Can you tell us, is that the same thing as AI? And do you have anything to add to Beth's sort of definition there? Machine learning is really just one branch of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is a quite a large field and there's different types of artificial intelligence. The type that's become very popular and has become all the rage in the past, say, five to seven years is machine learning, which is just a particular way of designing a system that tries to reproduce human abilities, like the ability to classify dogs and cats or um, to tell whether a tumour is malignant or benign, and it works by trying to detect patterns in lots and lots of um, bodies of information in, in data. Is machine learning like a subset of AI then, like in kind of the same way that a square is a subset of rectangles, yes. but yeah. not all rectangles are yeah, squares? That's a fair point. And Richard, do you have anything to add to our understanding of AI? Yeah, I mean, this is where the problem started. I mean, first of all, there's there's the issue of what human intelligence is, and it's too often purely equated with, with IQ. Then I think we get into the sort of broader area of confusion, which is to the general public, 
AI is what people in AI think of AGI. So, so rather than sort of narrow AI, which we've had for absolutely years, we're talking about sort of broad or general AI, which from my personal perspective, we're nowhere near. And then you also tip into a sort of super intelligence singularity thing, which I'm sure we'll pick up on later on. Can you just um, also define what is AGI? Um, uh, artificial general intelligence. So rather than sort of replicating something a human being does in a, in a very narrow area, it's replicating human capacities in a broad area or, or potentially across the board. So could you sort of give us an example of sort of how we could sort of envision AI in our everyday lives? Uh, well, again, we, we've had people, I think a lot of people don't recognize this, but we've had it for a very long time. I mean, I'm not sure how many years it is, but it'll, it'll be a few. Um, I mean, spell check, um, Netflix recommendations, how Amazon works, how your smartphone works. I mean, it's, it's all over the place, but it's, it's, we just don't really spot it. I think the reason why people don't spot it is the very reason that Richard was alluding to, which is that people tend, that the, the general lay public tend to think that AI is mechanical human beings. So the sort of innocuous Google Maps version of AI doesn't strike them as being AI, so they don't detect that it. it's beneath their radar. So on that note, how much has it sort of increased in sectors, you know, across business sectors or education sectors? How much has it increased over the last five years or so on? I would say it's actually quite hard to quantify because partially, as, as has been said, some of the applications of AI are quite invisible. They're in recommendation systems. They're not immediately apparent to people. Also, people are looking for the robotic form of AI as, as an expression of the technology. But also, there's a lot of uh, hype around the use of AI. So some companies are claiming that they're using machine learning or artificial intelligence, or actually it's sort of sophisticated statistics or nothing even remotely like that at all. If um, AI and machine learning is based on patterns, what will this mean in the future when patterns are affected by unusual events like the COVID pandemic, for example? Uh, you know, people have been buying a lot more products for baking at home. I, I think in terms of the human uh, side of AI, so where there are humans in the system making decisions about how algorithms are implemented, we also need to move beyond that algorithmic thinking that replicates what's happened before. So a particular example of this is the A-level algorithm issue that arose last summer, that actually the decisions made in the choice of what the algorithm um, selected for in order to give predicted grades was based on assumptions about if you came from a school that didn't classically do very well at A-level, you also would not do very well at A-level. So we need some of that human flexibility to respond to the changing scenario that we find ourselves in with the pandemic and the post-pandemic era. And Richard, I'm, I'm looking towards you here because uh, you're a futurist in residence. It would be great if you could sort of tell us what that sort of means a little bit and how you know this, this future of data will sort of maybe affect uh, your work going forward. Um, well, I, I, I keep trying to get rid of the title, but it follows me around all over the place. Um, it does polarise, but some people quite like it. Um, I'm, I'm really there just to sort of stimulate debate and push and provoke. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm in sort of two camps on predicting things. But, you know, if you make a prediction, you get a reaction. So it's a great way to start a conversation. I mean, back, back to the, the pandemic thing. I mean, one of the things that's potentially a legacy issue is a reluctance to get too close to people. And we might use AI systems to remove people from certain interactions. Although actually, 
I'm not sure I agree with that because uh, I think the thing we've missed more than anything is is the physical proximity of people, you know, hugging people and, and so on. Um, the other legacy might be some kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word Orwellian, but it's a good one, um, you know, track and trace. I mean, do we, do we just end that when we've got rid of this problem or is that going to carry on into the future and using analytics to predict behavior going forward as well? We were reading about what future and residence, futurist and residence is, and it. We read somewhere that you tend to think in scenarios, and um, try and pinpoint where organizations get their conceptions of the future wrong, and sort of help them correct that. Can you tell us what some of the common mistakes are in thinking about the future? Yeah. Um, well, I think the only thing you can say about the future with absolute certainty is it's uncertain, and that, and the further into the future you go, the more true that becomes. So logically, there must be more than one option or future out there and scenario planning is a way of sort of wind tunneling things and, and having sort of several balls in the air or several debates going on and, and so forth i mean the main reason people get it wrong is is linear extrapolation you take conditions now or very recent history and you extrapolate forward in a very linear manner um, neglecting to remember that we live in a system that has feedback loops unex, uh, unexpected events and so on um, although it's interesting, actually, with I don't want to sort of get into this too much, but it's interesting how we were so unprepared for the pandemic because it was perfectly well understood that it was out there as an extremely likely high impact event. Um, and we still weren't terribly prepared. And that maybe that's because there wasn't a date attached. Nobody knew Tuesday at 11 o'clock. Whereas if you look at something like Y2K, we knew exactly when that might be the problem. Beth and John, do you see yourselves as futurists? And will every organization have a futurist or AI officer? Um, I, I don't necessarily consider myself a futurist. As an anthropologist, I'm interested in human reactions now. And some of those involve envisaging the future as a kind of commentary on the present. So I'm less talking about extrapolations or linear progressions from where we are now, but actually how we imagine the future now and what that reflection on the future actually says about what we think of the present. Um, but yeah, certainly in terms of how organizations are responding to the development of technology, we are increasingly seeing as partly perhaps part of that heart hype cycle again, but corporations trying to make space for understanding this technology and where it might take them. So AI officers, for instance, but also AI ethics officers coming up as an issue as well. Speaking for myself, I don't um, pretend to any capacity to see the future myself. And I often marvel at people, some people that are avowed futurists, self-described futurists. Um, if I think back to probably one of the most famous futurists in the 20th century, Alvin Toffler, and I read what he wrote in his famous book, Future Shock. And then a couple of years later, he put out one called The Third Wave, I believe. If you read sections of that book and you, you know, look around the world that we inhabit today, the predictions are truly uncanny. He said things about the nature of the family, family structures, changes in um, employment patterns and forms of industrialization. I don't know how he was able to penetrate in that way. I don't have any feel that I have any talent in that regard, although I'm also acutely aware that being in the field that I'm in now and being asked to comment on AI in the future very often, I, I'm going to have to somehow learn or hone a latent skill that I might have for peering into the future.
there's there's a link here, I think, I mean, we're in danger of going a bit off script here. Um, there's a link here, I think, with AI, which is um, this whole futures business, it's, it's sort of subterfuge, it's an excuse to engage people at a very deep level in a discussion about what they're doing right now, which is quite a rare thing to be able to do in a large organization. And that's the one thing that, that we need more of in a discussion about AI. It's a lot of the discussion at the moment is, um, how are we going to do this? There's a bit of discussion about how it might go wrong. Um, there's very little discussion about why we're doing this, for example. Can you, can you answer, answer that question for us? Why? Because it's interesting and hard, um, but also the, the best, um, I, I attended an AI series of AI conferences at Jesus College um, a year or two ago, and eventually after three days it was asked, and, and the really good answer was because we're running out of humans, which is very true in most parts of the world, and aging populations as well. Can you say more about that? Because we know like the population is increasing, you know, globally. So how is it that we're running out of humans? Um, because um, you're, you're doing that extrapolation thing again. Um, if you go sort of mid-century, then, I mean, we, we, we've got fertility rates falling through the floor and we've got people living a lot longer. So you've got rapidly aging societies. And the only real exceptions to that are sub-Saharan Africa, bits of the Middle East and, and Southeast Asia. So we're particularly running out of um, younger people. And you see this in Japan, and this links back into AI and robotics. So Japan, you've got an awful lot of older people. There's very few or not enough younger people being born to look after the old people, amongst other things. So they're using robotics. So you've got um, an AI seal called Paro, for example, that is used in care homes um, with various residents because there's not enough people to interact with the people. Hey guys. Sorry to interrupt, but I have a question. Um, what is AI? Okay, just in case you were zoned out or thinking you already knew the answer, um, I'll tell you again. So artificial intelligence, or AI, is an attempt to recreate human intellectual capabilities artificially, more often than not in a computer. This could be language processing, facial recognition, and so on. Although the academic definition of AI might be different to that used in everyday language. Yes. For example, our guests would draw a distinction between machine learning and AI. Machine learning is one type of AI, and it usually involves getting a computer to reproduce humans' abilities to classify things, like dogs versus cats, or benign versus malignant tumors. And then there's artificial general intelligence, or AGI, which would be a machine capable of replicating pretty much any human intellectual feat, although we're quite a long way from that. Oh, sounds a bit science fiction to me. Well, some of it might be, but we've been living with AI for ages. Richard highlighted a couple of examples like Netflix recommendations, Google Maps and spell checking. They're all AI, we just don't really think of them like that. Wait, you mean Clippy was AI? It looks like you're making a podcast. Would you like some help with that? Yes, please, Clippy. I, I think I would. John suggested that we generally don't spot this sort of AI because our image of AI is often robots or mechanical human-like beings. Think Battlestar Galactica or iRobot. And Beth also highlighted that there are some services marketed as AI, but which in reality are just clever statistics. So AI isn't going to make me redundant? Not just yet. Yeah, AI is more about augmenting human capabilities, not necessarily replacing them. So luckily for you, at least for a while yet, we'll still need to apply human intelligence in order to make many decisions. But it's interesting to think what the effect of the pandemic might be here. AI can remove the need for people to engage in certain interactions. No, I'm already missing those in-person interactions. Well, 
On the other hand, maybe people will be dying to interact face-to-face, -face, and everyone will reject those interventions by AI, which make this less likely. At some point you started talking about trying to predict the future, is that right? Yeah, well it turns out academics actually hate being asked to predict things, but we did get some tips for how to better think about the future. Richard suggested that we try to avoid tunnel vision. The only certainty is that the future is uncertain. So the main reason people get things wrong when thinking about the future is something he called linear extrapolation, which is where you take some recent or current trend and try to guess what will happen in the future based on that. Forgetting, of course, that we live in a world full of unexpected events, feedback loops, and so on. Beth offered an anthropologist's perspective and suggested that the way we think about the future now is more a reflection of today than what the future might actually hold. This sounds pretty familiar to some of what we discussed in the episode where we talk about what the future looked like in the past. Yeah, John mentioned two books by Alvin Toffler. Future Shock, which was published in 1970, and The Third Wave, which was published in 1980. He says that some of the predictions made by Toffler in these two books are uncanny. For example, those about family structures and employment patterns. I'm sorry to admit that I have never heard of Alvin Toffler. You're totally missing out. Toffler was a writer, self-trained social scientist, and futurist. Future Shock predicted the rise of personal computers, the internet, cable TV, and telecommuting. But did he predict Furbies? Almost certainly not. I mean, who could have predicted Furbies? And Richards told us something pretty fascinating. Apparently, we're running out of humans. So sure, the population is increasing for now, but fertility rates are actually falling in many areas and lots of people are living longer. So it seems we're running out of young working age people in a lot of places. And on the subject of people and AI, Beth is about to tell us about how and why AI might be more acceptable in certain parts of the world than in others. Um, Beth, maybe this is a good point to bring you, you in as we're talking about sort of AI interacting with like culture and experiences like that. I mean, we know that you've done some work on AI and religion and the interaction there. Could you tell us a little bit about that and possibly react to some of the stuff Richard was saying about running out of people? Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting to, to raise the cultural context in which these discussions are, having, are being had. So the concern that we're running out of people is a is a is a demographically based concern for certain parts of the world. It's not a concern for all parts of the world, with a specific example being given of Japan and their relationship with robots sometimes is shorthanded by people in the West as being because they have an animistic tradition and history, and therefore they're more likely to be accepting of robotic companions, robotic nurses. And, and I think a lot of that conversation kind of generalizes and abstracts into the East versus West scenarios and cultural context. But actually, the, the situation is much more complex than that, even here in the so-called West, that we actually also have our animistic relationships with technology, uh, people's relationships with the AI assistants that are increasingly coming into our homes, how children are growing up reacting to these AI assistants. It's not going to be as simple as some cultures have this animistic religious background and others don't. So we need to we need to look at the complexity with an anthropological lens and think about the the diversity of cultures and how they've interacted with each other and the religious side. Oh, there's a lot to be said about that, but I think uh, if, if there's a specific question on 
religion and AI. Maybe before we go into the religion bit, can you just tell us what you mean by animistic? I just don't know what that word, what it even means. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So animism is the perspective you see in many cultures that objects have spirits within them, that they are, that's where we get the word animated and animation from. There is something within it and for many cultures, this this is seen as on a scale from small spirits, kami in Japan, up to large supernatural entities like gods and deities. Um, so sometimes our narrative about the, the rationalization and the secularization of the West after the Enlightenment is that we dropped all of that and we don't have that perspective. And therefore, when it comes to robots being persons, we react differently than other cultures. But actually, there's still elements and threads of that that have survived. Uh, and the differences are not as extreme as sometimes the East versus West dichotomy seems to suggest. Can I jump in, Beth? You, you talked about um, being blessed by the algorithm before. Could you explain that and maybe being cursed by the algorithm yeah, as well? Absolutely. So uh, one aspect of my work is looking at social media discourse around AI. And uh, in particular, I was struck by a phrase I saw called, uh, people saying, I've been blessed by the algorithm, specifically in relation to Uh, content platforms like YouTube or Spotify, the sense that either their content had done particularly well or that they had received a recommendation from the algorithm that was pleasing and made them happy. Um, And obviously, I'm looking at this in terms of a continuity of theistic language rather than uh, a specific religious activity. Uh, So sometimes this can be parody, tongue in cheek, um, but also it represents a view of quotation marks, the algorithm behind the scenes, having some form of agency or even super agency. And for a lot of people, AI as this nebulous concept falls very quickly, as Richard said, into this idea of artificial general intelligence, the the conception of AI as already having human-like abilities and being able to make choices uh, that aren't as they actually are determined by the values of a corporate system. YouTube's algorithm tries to get as many eyes on particular content as possible for corporate reasons and commercial reasons, not because the algorithm itself has decided to bless you in a particular way. I hear what you're saying about the algorithm and private or sort of corporate interests. What about the public sphere? John, are there any lessons to be learned with a democracy mindset? Um, As science and technology advance and gallop forward, and the world becomes increasingly befuddling and complicated, how are we to expect citizens to keep sufficiently abreast of development so that they can make informed decisions at the ballot box? What I see um, AI as posing is essentially a, a major kind of ratchet effect upwards in the knowledge, um, the knowledge base that will be expected to be the possession of every voting citizen. Um, so the, the the main thing that I see as problematic is um, how do we get citizens up to speed to, to a level that would be adequate for them to make meaningful democratic choices? I guess it kind of kind of relates back to that statement about being blessed by the algorithm. People might say that if they don't really know how the algorithm works, I guess, and it's sort of you're you're giving it this sense of knowing something, but you don't really know what it knows. Is that kind of a, a, a meaningful yeah, connection there? Say, yeah. I was thinking more just in general in terms of, um, for instance, Cambridge Analytica has clear implications for the way elections will be held now and forevermore. And the, the, um, the shadow of Cambridge Analytica 
kind of hovers over every election, well, has hovered over every election since. And, um, but how many people in the public really know what happened, what the intrigues are, what the intricacies are, and how much should they know? So that I'm thinking more in those terms, but there is that connection that you made as well. Is, is there anything special about being informed about AI versus other things? Like should people, you know, there's so much going on in today's society that we all need to be informed about. I always feel woefully uninformed about anything I try and talk to people about. Is there, is there some special thing about AI that people should really pay attention to this subject? Well, I think about it in terms of global warming and the science of climate change. Most people, most fair-minded people acknowledge that humans have contributed to um, global warming and that something needs to be done. Indeed, something, many things quite drastic need to, need to happen to avert catastrophe. But of course, um, to really understand the climate, you have to be across um, meteorology, oceanography, geology, there are all sorts of arcane technical fields that only a handful of people have expertise in. And yet, um, as I say, most fair-minded citizens would agree that there's a problem and that they and they can make an informed decision about policies that affect the climate. At the moment, I'm not sure that we have a, um, a comparable level of understanding about AI and machine learning. So we kind of need to bring the public up to a point where their understanding, their comprehension is, let's say, comparable to that that most fair-minded people have on climate change. Though they're not experts in oceanography and so forth, they still have some basis for making informed decisions. Can I just ask one quick follow-up and then I'll let Nick go. How do people get informed about AI other than perhaps reading your <laughs> new book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence? Is that the title? Yeah. Um, what other opportunities do people have to, to get informed? One thing that's really struck me, and I do a fair bit of public engagement work, and I made a series of short documentaries specifically for this task of trying to educate as, as general an audience as possible. And I show them at festivals and, uh, you know, we won, it was a team effort. We won an award, uh, a best research film of the year a couple of years ago. Um, that actually, if you present a very, we hope, fair-minded, reasonable account of what AI is and what it's up to, it doesn't get the same kind of traction than some of the public engagement effects from the press and the media that are more prone to the dystopic or the highly utopian that really have the headline grabbing uh, elements. So there is that risk and danger for academics trying to engage with the public that it's, it's hard sometimes to, to push through that plethora of accounts of the dystopia that AI could bring. Um, but I think it's still definitely worth it. And we still continue to, as much as possible, to, to push these these films out there. But you have to also be aware, and we, we sort of form our own bubble of AI expertise here, that for a lot of people, the term AI means very little indeed. I mean, I was in a taxi a couple of years ago, and a lovely taxi driver asked me what I do. And I say, I work in AI broadly. Um, and he said, oh, artificial insemination, that's very interesting. So there is, you know, we, it's 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 very easy to slip into assuming everyone has an understanding of what this term is that goes somewhat beyond the press representation of it or that they've even encountered it at all. Thinking about it the other way, right? So we've just been talking about how we're conveying messages to the general public, but I'm going to throw it in the opposite direction. What do we need to say or what do the people who are creating, I guess, AI need to hear? Um, 
in terms of what we want from people involved in this area, I think we would like a sort of a lot of discussion. Um, I think we'd like, or I would like transparency. I mean, I'm a big fan of, of this idea of open AI where we can sort of look inside the black box and, and sort of look for biases when something goes wrong. Um, you know, if somebody is killed because of an AI system, we can actually find out why that was. And it's not sort of hidden behind some proprietary or legalese or, or something like that. Um, we, are, we are beginning to get a debate. I mean, we had a debate about um, algorithms with A-levels last summer in the UK. Um, we've had, we're starting to have debate around things like um, autonomous vehicles because a few people are getting killed. We're having debates about fully autonomous weapons. We've had a debate about um, computerized toys that contain AI because of the effect on children. So it is, it is coming. And I just think we, we need more and more of it, really. And a lot of this comes, comes down to digital trust. Um, privacy, um, surveillance, uh, who owns the data, how secure is the data, and, and so on and so forth. This kind of ethics talk um, may, may allow us to turn the conversation back to AI and religion, because AI and religion sort of seem at surface level to be like two things that wouldn't go together. But I guess we're starting to talk about, you know, um, the people writing the algorithms, if it's people and not machines who are writing their own algorithms, um, there's usually some kind of moral um, bent to them, particularly if we're talking about things like driverless cars and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I mean, certainly, traditionally, historically, the assumption has been is that uh, the narrative of morals comes from various different religious institutions, established traditions, give a sense of a, a, a deontological approach to ethics, the idea that there are rules and guidances that come from some form of entity. And for many people, that's not the case. They don't have that perspective at all. But we can ask the question, where are the values in AI coming from? If it is, as we're saying, from human beings, what values do we want to have to input into the systems? And that in itself is a complicated question. How do you input values into a system? But we have to be aware that every single person involved in AI comes with their own moral system, comes with their own value system. And for some people, the answer, again, is to go for this deontological approach of setting out rules and regulations. And some religious groups have attempted to write their own that may or may not be listened to. Um, different organizations have been involved in that effort, uh, institutes, research institutes, write suggestions of rules and regulations. But it really, at the end of the day, comes down to how we educate people ethically from childhood, uh, what we as a society develop together as a set of associated values. Uh, and there will be tension points. Uh, I, for instance, one evangelical group in America, uh, Baptist community came up with their rules for AI in conversation with someone from, I believe, Amazon or Google. And that was intention because it was a, it was a conservative approach, whereas some people have a more liberal approach and there was distinct differences there. Uh, Google had an ethics committee with a, a conservative Christian member and that caused tensions and problems. It's, it's a difficult ongoing conversation, but whether you're religious or not, your cultural context will inform how you approach this topic. This is the problem, I think, with ethical AI, because we, we can't agree what ethical behavior is for humans, let alone machines. I mean, Chinese would tend to prioritize the group, the, the US would tend to prioritize the individual. And this is where it's tipping rather beautifully into philosophy and, and things. I mean, there was, there was a great series of um, online lectures, I think it was Michael Sandel at Harvard talking about ethics. And you know, Tesla is facing the same problems. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of an old example now, but you know, if there's a woman uh, in her 20s that's pregnant in the back of a Tesla um, late at night, and 
a drunk 70-year-old, rather obese man jumps in front of the car. The car has got to decide potentially what it's going to do. And it could hit the person, it could swerve away from the person and kill the person in the back. And you're you're juggling with the value of different forms of human life. I mean, it, th these are sort of deep questions that AI is, is bringing to the surface. Yeah, MIT ran an interesting global survey where people could choose how much they value different characteristics. So homeless woman versus homeless man, pregnant woman versus uh, single man, gender, race, all these attributes. And a, a collective answer in the survey just really demonstrates how we aggregate different communities and place different values on them. And that in itself felt quite horrific that we would, if, if a person had a pram with them, they were worth more than a homeless person. That sort of aggregate of values also doesn't work particularly well. So we're sort of very humanly muddling through this conversation and trying to devise ethical systems for ourselves, as you say, but also for AI. Hang on a minute. What do our spiritual beliefs have to do with AI? So we talked about animism, which is the belief that objects have spirits within them. Like a bottle of vodka. Lots of spirits there. Not quite. That's the wrong sort of spirit. Animism is the belief that all objects, natural and not, are animated with a spiritual essence. During the Western Enlightenment, people supposedly gave up the idea of animism. But actually, a lot of these beliefs have survived, perhaps more than some people care to admit. And Beth was telling us about how animism is today one of the factors that influence how people think about robots and AI. For example, it's been suggested that Shintoism, which is a traditional religion in Japan, might explain Japanese fondness for robots. Shintoism is a form of animism that attributes spirits not only to humans, but to animals and natural features, like trees, and everyday objects, like pencils. So in this worldview, everything has a spirit, even robots. So does this sort of thinking also affect how we talk about AI? Definitely. There was lots of chat about the phrase, blessed by the algorithm. People might use this if their content has generated a lot of attention. For example, if a YouTube video has a lot of views. Or people might use this phrase if a streaming service has recommended something which you particularly enjoy. Beth called this phrase an example of theistic language. Which basically means language that relates to belief in the existence of a god. The god of algorithms! Exactly! But Beth reminds us that in reality there's no heavenly AI entity that blessed you. It's just down-to-earth corporations like YouTube wanting to make money and try to lure you into spending more of your time watching videos. Which it does all too successfully. I, I mean, not in my case, of course. Um, and what's all this about AI being a threat to democracy? Well, a successful democracy depends on its citizens being well-educated. These days, there's so much going on that it's getting very difficult to be educated about all of it. John mentioned Cambridge Analytica, not related to Cambridge University, we hasten to add. They used AI to do large-scale psychological profiling of American voters based on a ton of different data sources, including through Facebook. They ran a targeted digital ad campaign to influence people to vote for <clears throat> certain conservative politicians. Uh-oh, so I really need to know my stuff then. Well, a little knowledge goes a long way. Well, what can I do if I want to learn more? I'm assuming you're not willing to become an AI scholar? Oh, Naomi, I'm afraid that boat has sailed. Well, okay, in that case, here are some suggestions. Step one, be sure you know what AI actually is. Check! Sorted that earlier. <laughs> wow, I'm nailing this. Step two, read a book. Maybe even John's book. 
A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence. Okay, I've fallen at the second hurdle. Uh, let me get a pen and I'll write this down. Okay, step 2.5. If you can't stomach a book, how about some of Beth's award-winning videos? They're available through her website and the link is in the episode description. Would make a change from videos about cute dogs being rescued and rehomed. True. Step three, keep a healthy skepticism about what you read about AI in the news. Often it's all negative as that's deemed most exciting. Eyes peeled and skepticism tank full to the brim. And finally, step four, discuss and debate AI with people who know more about it. In short, get curious. I feel like you two are my new life coaches. Thanks guys. No problem. Final question though, what's the deal with AI and ethics? Well, the point is that we're the ones making AI. Well, not literally us three. We can barely make a podcast. But as humans making AI, we need to decide what values to input into these systems. So we need to be thinking about who's making these decisions. And if our values differ from place to place in the world, which values do we choose? Basically, every person and society's moral values are different. And it's going to be a bit of a nightmare working all of this out we're sort of talking about how we're grappling with and possibly having to reevaluate our cultural judgments in the face of AI. Um, how, how else is AI affecting cultural um, experiences or cultural practices? Uh, I think it's already come up in terms of a post-pandemic world that whether we want to fill in the spaces between humans and human contact with AI um, whether we want sort of a mediated experience with other humans through artificial intelligence. And the example I was thinking of as well is the AI assistant uh, in the home being another voice in the home. Is that changing the shape of the childhood experience? We already know that there are anecdotal uh, examples of children reacting to AI assistants different and being corrected on their behavior, whether they're polite enough. You can download an Alexa skill that will encourage a child to say please and thank you. And is that the kind of scenario that we want? Um, as we increasingly have an, uh, a house built around technology with interactive scenarios, do we want those observers participating in family life like that? That's a very big question. I was just going to uh, see if I could find a small robot I've got in my office somewhere called Hello Barbie. It wouldn't work very well on a podcast, but... Um, Please describe it. I'm intrigued now. She's Barbie-sized. Um, looks exactly like what you expect, but she's got um, some natural language processing, Wi-Fi connectivity, um, et cetera, et cetera. And she can work out who you are. And you can have quite reasonable conversations because she's pulling stuff down from the internet the whole time. And there are, there are sort of two issues with this. There's the sort of slight issue with the fact it's hackable and the sort of rather strange guy in the, in the raincoat next door could be having conversations with my six-year-old daughter, if you like. Um, and the, the other one is, you know, is it socially acceptable for children to be raised by machines? This is something that Sherry Turkle at MIT is very interested in. Um, and I think it's it, there's not an easy yes or no on that. It's it's a question of common sense and to some extent balance. But these are the sort of issues we're we're having recently. John, do you want to come in here on like the hackability of of some of these like sort of home products that have AI in them, and particularly ones used by children, perhaps? Yeah, well, in some ways, children have been raised by technology since parents have plumped them in front of the television and put Disney movies on. So I suppose the question is whether there's something in kind what, in what's going on with, with smart toys. The other comment I would make is that often 
the smart option, the so-called smart option is actually the dumb option. If, you, if you're um, someone that follows privacy debates, you will not think that an, a, smart, a smart gas or electricity meter or a smart washing machine is really a smart thing to do. Because yes, you open yourself up to being hacked. Um, if someone hacks the um, electricity grid and finds out that your electricity or gas usage is low, they'll infer that you're not home, they might break into your home. So that's the other thing to think about. I used to sort of laugh a bit about, you know, what's, what's the problem with a smart meter? Al-Qaeda are going to hack into my central heating and turn it up by two degrees. You know, that's not really a real-world problem. But it was explained to me uh, eventually that actually if you hack into enough systems simultaneously, you can cause the entire system to crash. And that is a problem. Yes, yeah, certainly sort of a DDoS attack on something like a, a internet-enabled pacemaker. I think there's something... Uh, vague memory of that happening in a TV drama at some point, speculating on the future. But also these devices don't need to be hacked to be a privacy concern because the corporations who are absorbing all this data are in turn using the data to train algorithmic systems that can make choices for you. Uh, and that again returns us to that question of the invisibility of AI, that these things are behind the scenes. We don't need to necessarily get to the robo-apocalypse of the Terminator and Skynet. We can have the mini robo-apocalypse, a decision made on your behalf by a system absorbs your data already and deciding that, say, you can't have a mortgage, so you can't have the home, your lifestyle has to change. All these sort of steps where we're inputting machines into the decision-making system have to be thought about very carefully. Yeah. Um, so, Beth, before you mentioned that um, your research indicated that people don't respond in the same way to news that news about technology or whatever it might be that's not sufficiently dystopic and it's only in the nightmarish scenarios that you can really get people sort of interested does that extend i'm, I'm not sure whether you looked at this but does that extend to the not quite dystopic but still disturbing uses that are being made of ai technology now so forget about apocalypse but just the fact that there's algorithmic bias, that fraud detection systems are being used by governments here and there to try to, you know, filter out welfare, what they call welfare dodgers and so forth. Is that sufficiently troubling to get people interested or is it still not sexy and Hollywood? I, I think what tends to happen is that the concept of something like algorithmic bias is, is complicated whereas the quick reach for the dystopic imagery is easier. It's certainly there in the selling of press stories to get eyes on the story in the, in the attention economy that having a picture of the Terminator sells quicker than saying there is this real world concerning example of algorithmic bias. And also it's there in how quickly the discourse moves from those very concrete real world examples to speculations based on science fiction. It's there in the references people have, obviously, like, as I said, Terminator and Skynet, but also just assumptions that if AI can do one narrow thing very well, people leap to, oh, it's past the Turing test, now we have to worry. So for instance, uh, Boston Dynamics, uh, uh, their quadrupedal robots that could open doors. I mean, that's, that is a significant step in robotics because some of those elements are very tricky to do, recognition of the object, opening it, movement, so forth. But the immediate response is straight again on uh, primarily I'm thinking of social media platforms too. you know, this is the end. You know, they can open doors, they can get us, they will kill us immediately to the tropes that we're very familiar with. So it's not just that the concepts are tricky to understand when we're talking about real world problems. It's just that very quickly we get into the apocalyptic scenario.
Now, is that a question that needs to be evaluated by, like, in the media, every single story you ever look at, the AI, it's either Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator or some reference to Skynet. Now, is that, how is that going to change in the future? I know well, that. that's true. But, but I mean, I, one of my favourite AI films is Her, which is, you know, about somebody full, you know, preferring the company of, of an avatar or, or an app than, than, a, than a human being. So it is, it is sort of creeping in um, a little bit. I'm sure we'll, we'll see, see more of that in the future. I just want to sort of go backwards slightly to a couple of things people have said. I mean, first of all, um, thinking of Sherry Turkle, I mean, she, she once said something along the lines of, you know, one of the consequences of the machines that think might very well be humans that don't. So there's a battle, you know, it might be that artificial intelligence brings out real human stupidity. So this is people driving into rivers because they're staring at their sat nav, sort of complete loss of common sense. Because And it's back to trust to some extent. We just trust that this thing will work and sometimes it doesn't. And then there's a, there's a sort of meta sort of thought around the loss of free agency, which is possibly something John should pick up on, because I think some philosophers believe we've never, ever had any. But, you know, this idea that you sit down and you think you're making decisions, but actually it's all being conjured for you by the Netflix algorithm and, and so on. Now, maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't know. that Again, it's quite an intriguing area of debate. I mean, John, what about loss of free agency to um, AI systems? That's, a, that's a, an important question. I don't think um, that there's enough evidence to suggest that we are losing free agency. I think there's more evidence to suggest that what we're doing is, uh, as you were saying, surrendering control, willingly surrendering, voluntarily surrendering control because we're trusting that the sat-nav or whatever it might be will do the job. Um, but this is not this is not the kind of loss of agency that makes us all automatons or stupid quite yet. This, the danger is, though, that as technologies get more and more sophisticated and we um, automate more and more of the things that used to be done manually, that our, our skill sets will atrophy in all sorts of areas. So rather than focusing on free agency as a kind of question about whether we have autonomy or whether you know, we have free will, I would focus more on the question, I suppose, um, what to what extent is our skill base being depleted or degraded as a result of our reliance on technology? And what can we do to make sure that one day when it inevitably will shut down, it being whatever, the internet, something else, can we pick up the slack and do what we used to do as proficiently as we used to do it before we relied on these systems? This is this is a, a concept that uh, pops up a lot in terms of conversations about the, a post-work future brought about by auto automation and that science fiction gives us imaginaries of what this post-work future would look like, whether we would atrophy, as you say, and I think uh, the, the, the kind of key example for that is the WALL-E future. If you've seen the Pixar film WALL-E, that the humans have atrophied into these uh, entertainment consuming, food consuming entities that don't really have purpose. And of course, the purpose of the film is to teach us that we should have purpose. Um, but then you've got the, the counter of the kind of Star Trek luxury space communism of the freedom that AI and forms of technology, it's, it's less apparent that it's AI in Star Trek, that will free us to do these amazing things like travel the universe and create great arts and great music. And those two things, the utopian and the dystopic, again, appear in our AI discourse when the truth will be closer to something like what William Gibson says, that the future is already here, it's just unequally distributed, that for some people, 
there will be the utopian future and for some people that will be the dystopian. And we need to think very carefully about how much we do cede over to these extended minds. So I, I personally would say, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've handed over my ability to remember things like phone numbers and email addresses to automated filling systems and forms. Um, is that something I should try and reclaim or do I accept that some things make my life easier? I think it's a good theme here, actually, around, around science fiction. Um, I mean, most engineers seem to be on, certainly American ones, seem to be sort of techno optimists. You know, AI is nothing but brilliant. It's going to cure disease. It's going to sort out climate change. It's going to predict volcanoes and earthquakes. It's all fantastic. Um, Sci-fi is generally dystopian. I mean, it's hard to think of utopian sci-fi with, with the exception of Star Trek. And I think to some extent that was because of when Star Trek was made. It was an optimistic time, um, 60s, really. And I, but I personally think the best sci-fi is when you get a combination of the two. So I'm thinking of things like um, Robot and Frank, which, you know, some things work perfectly, like the robot, and other things, the phone, is just hopeless. And, and Blade Runner has a bit of that. So we'll probably get certain things that do work and other things that don't alongside each other. Can I ask a quick follow-up? It's maybe a little bit silly, but for Richard, um, you know, we were talking about how, you know, some of your work involves scenario planning. Are there any of these futuristic sci-fi things that approximate what you think is a realistic scenario or some combination of, of a few different sci-fi uh, things that people will be familiar with? Um, I, I'm struggling off the top of my head to think of any. I mean, with, I, I tend to do scenarios where you come up with four different worlds. Um, you've got a sort of two by two and you've got two drivers. And where it gets interesting is when you push to the very, very edges of things. I mean, I did some work years ago on the future of public libraries and it got really interesting out at the edges. So you had, there was one scenario which just paper just vanished, it ceased to exist. And then you had another scenario which is polar opposite which was complete collapse in trust in digital platforms. Everyone flopped back to these sort of um, well, paper and, and other things. So yeah, you, you do dig into that a fair bit. Um, and I think if you, if you talk to a lot of people, they will tend to go in a quite a sort of techie, well, again, they'll either go techie utopian or techie dystopian. And it will depend upon where they are and when. So if, for example, if you, if you were talking to, if you were in, Shanghai in 2007 or possibly now actually talking about the future you would I think you'd probably get some quite optimistic scenarios and, and, and narratives whereas you know if you're in Europe right now or back in 2008 it was going in the other direction so again it's back to that extrapolation point. Beth did you have anything to pick up on that or did you? Uh, I was just going to be immensely geeky and talk about Star Trek but I don't know how much you want of that but I just <laughs> James like yes um, just that Star Trek is is actually a very good example of the utopian dystopian mix that actually yeah you've got as i say luxury space communism but underpinning that each episode has to have a dystopic element to have the tension of a story and that's true of all science fiction that's why we have so many dystopian scenarios within even utopian worlds in science fiction but i think i mean i'm very cautious every so often there's a, an article that pops up saying how good is science fiction about predicting the future uh, or picking on a particular writer like Asimov and saying, you know, he was completely wrong about this or he, we could completely adopt his four laws of robotics. Everyone says three, there are four. Um, but we have to bear in mind that the purpose of science fiction is not prediction, it's, it's reflection, I think, more than that. Um, so I don't necessarily see it as a useful tool in that sense. The other thing to be mentioned, obviously, about science fiction is, is this sort of symbiosis, because a lot of science fiction is 
phenomenally accurate, but their timing quite often stinks. And it's because, I mean, H.G. Wells, you know, he went to Imperial College. The, the, there was a mathematician, I, can't, I was thinking it was Jack Good, but it wasn't, it wasn't, who was one of the advisors to Kubrick on 2001 Space Odyssey. So some of, some of these people writing fiction are phenomenally well-informed. And it works the other way around as well, in that, you know, an engineer will see something in a, in a Star Trek film and say, why can't we have a medical tricorder? How difficult would that, that be? Um, by the way, I've just pulled off a bookshelf, something called 2001, Living in the Future, which was written by Jeffrey Hoyle in, I think it was late 80s, and it is, it is staggeringly accurate about online education and online retail. But again, it varies a bit, but it can, it can again, it's, it's not really trying to predict, it's, it's trying to create a discussion about where people want to go, I think, a lot of the time just thinking about all the sort of factors we've sort of talked about with regards to AI, like ethics and automation and, and the scenarios, um, sort of what, so what sort of solutions should we sort of be concentrating on for com combating these, all of these issues that I, AI presents? And I'll throw this one to John, if you want to start us off. I think the most immediate kind of solution needs to be regulatory. And here I'm thinking of something like what the US did with its biggest um, steel companies back at the turn of the 20th century. It essentially saw that they got too big, saw that there was a monopoly, and it implemented antitrust laws, which essentially are about enforcing competition in the marketplace to prevent any one person or company acquiring kind of superpowers in, in the economy. And um, they also combined that with um, uh, laws that made it easier for companies to enter the market more generally. Um, and obviously the New Deal in the 1930s contributed to creating, uh, ushering in a welfare state or something like a welfare state in the, in the US at least. So I'm thinking that um, the biggest companies that are currently wielding enormous power um, unlike anything really that we've we've seen um, in the world before, um, when you think of the scale of it, the sheer scale, the sheer numbers of people that that have Facebook accounts, whether they're all active users is another question. But it, I mean that fact in itself, the fact that um, it's become so entrenched and embedded as a way for people to access news, um, that it's become part of their daily lives makes it extremely troubling that then when it's deemed not to be in their commercial interest, they can simply pull the plug as they did in Australia and then limit access to really vital government news and information about the vaccine rollout, for example. As it happened, Facebook then reversed its decision when it entered into a, an agreement with the Australian government. But the fact that they could do that and that it could wreak so much uh, disruption and havoc tells us that something needs to give. And I, I think that breaking the big ones up, something will have, to, will have to happen. Something as audacious and as bold as what was attempted at the beginning of the 20th century. So with the regulation, I mean, you talked a little bit about the US there and Australia. Would this happen on a, you know, would nations need to do this individually? Is it something that we all need to come together as a global community to tackle, like climate change? Yeah, that's a good question. In the first instance, a company like Facebook is, I believe, incorporated now in Delaware. I think that's, that's true. So in the first instance, wherever they're incorporated, 
um, that would determine the jurisdiction that has, you know, the relevant corporate law or the relevant legal system that would enable something to happen to the structure, the corporate structure. So to begin with, I think the, the low-hanging fruit, we sort of have to act nationally. Um, so I, I'm actually, for, one, for once, I'm rather proud that the Australian government has done what it did in, in tackling Google and Facebook and trying to implement some sort of regime change in how the government deals with them. Um, but then, yes, at, at an international level, further action may be required. I'm not really sufficiently well-researched to tell you what measures would need to take place at an international level, but low-hanging fruit seems the best way to begin the process. I think we, we've been here with other technologies, whether they're entirely parallel is, is another part of the conversation. But, you know, we have red lines. We have you know, rubicons we won't pass when it comes to genetic engineering, nuclear power. And we, we have tried to work nation with nation on that. And, of course, that's an imperfect process. But I think that's one aspect. The other aspect, not just top-down regulation, but also bottom-up grassroots understanding and activism and public engagement so that... From, from a young age, you're informed about why Facebook works the way that it does. Um, and then when people grow older and then become the people who can inform policy, that's all threaded through there with that thinking. So it, 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 I think some of the focus, certainly in the ethics of AI, as I said, has, has resolved down to just lists of things corporations should and shouldn't do. And unless you have teeth and you have buy-in from the public that they will themselves push back when a large corporation does something they don't want them to do. Like we've seen actually with staff members at uh, uh, Google not wanting to invest in AI for military purposes. If we can have those levels of engagement all the way from the bottom to the top, then that's, that's, going, to be, that's going to be what we need. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we have been there before with, with chemical, biological, nuclear um, cloning and so on. I mean, there might be a slight difference in that um, most of those are huge things, whereas somebody in their bedroom potentially could could do something with, with bits of AI. I mean, I, I think we should just play a little thought experiment. You know, what if what if we succeeded? What if we we got AGI beyond our wildest dreams? You know, what would that actually look like? What would we want it to do for us? I mean, I, I think something around, you know, benefiting the human species would be a sort of a rather sort of silly one but um and the really interesting thing to me is if if it if we really get this what does it do to the human species and i think one of the great things that could come out of agi if it ever happens is a really deep discussion about who we are what we're good at what makes us happy you know what is what is a good life which brings us straight back to the philosophical questions of of ancient greece and so on is that the end? That's the end. Okay, I can live with that. Remind me some of the ways our guests suggested that AI is affecting our everyday lives. Well, we heard about etiquette add-ons for Alexa to help children learn to be polite. When talking to Alexa? Well, presumably when talking to everyone. Richard told us about new smart toys, including a Barbie with Wi-Fi and voice recognition capabilities. She knows who you are. Richard also asked whether it's socially acceptable for children to be raised by machines. And then John asked whether this is really all that different from being raised by a TV. I mean, I don't know what sort of TV you have, but last I checked, my TV couldn't change a nappy. To be fair, I'm not sure there's an AI that can change nappies yet. 
As a father of two young children, that would be a game changer if there was. We also heard about how people's cultural references for AI are often scary, negative, or violent in some way. But according to Beth, the robo-apocalypse of Terminator and Skynet is unlikely to be the way in which AI takes us down, if at all. A more likely negative outcome of AI is the use of personal data as a way to control people or prevent them from accessing things like mortgages. Ah, the great mortgage apocalypse! We have to be mindful of how tech will affect people differently, just like we talked about in the fairness episode. Yeah, we don't hear a lot about the mortgage apocalypse because robots are sexier. I don't know what real robots look like around your neck of the woods, but unless they look like Jake Gyllenhaal, then I very much doubt that robots are particularly sexy. Well, you do have to admit that a robot would definitely make for a more interesting and visually captivating movie than algorithmic bias. This algorithmic bias happened to look like Jake Gyllenhaal? I'm moving on now. Beth mentioned the quadrupedal robots from Boston Dynamics. These are four-legged robots that look a little like headless dogs, and she suggested that people tend to jump to some extreme conclusions when they see these robots open doors. Namely, that if they can open doors, they can get to us! I'm locking my door tonight, that's all I'm saying. Any dog that can open a door is surely a criminal mastermind. Me too. I know, maybe I'll lay out some tasty USB snacks to distract them. And what about free will with AI around? Well, Richard challenged us on this. We think we're making our own decisions, but how many of those decisions are actually based on algorithmic suggestions? And John pointed to the evidence which suggests that we're willingly surrendering control over our lives. For example, blindly trusting the sat-nav when we drive somewhere new. So we're not getting stupider quite yet. Speak for yourself. But particular skill sets may start to waste away if our reliance on AI continues. Like the ability to remember phone numbers and addresses. We need to make sure we maintain these skill sets for when the technology ultimately fails us. Beth gives us the example of WALL-E here as a film which tries to persuade us that we need to retain some of these skills. I'm afraid I missed that reading when I watched WALL-E. Sorry, Beth. Beth also mentions Star Trek as another fictional example of how AI-based technologies might free us, in this case to travel the universe. Luxury space communism is how she put it. By the way, there's a whole host of technology today that was more or less predicted in Star Trek. There was the personal access display device, basically an iPad. Then there was voice recognition, although the computer was just called computer, rather than Siri or Alexa. The medical tricorder, a handheld device that could diagnose a patient without invasive tests, has also been replicated in a few different ways. For example, iPad apps that use non-invasive sensors to collect patient vitals. Pretty impressive stuff. Oh, and the communicators were basically mobile phones. Although not so much luck on teleportation, replicated food, faster than light travel, and a united Earth government. No, not yet. Just segways, impossible burgers, and the EU, I'm afraid. Although again, we should note that science fiction isn't really about predicting the future. It's more a product of its time. Richard mentions science fiction writer Jeffrey Hoyle's 2010, Living in the Future. Richard says it's 2001, but we've done some digging and think he meant 2010. This was written in the 1970s and was another staggeringly accurate prediction of the role of computers in today's society. Interesting side note here, Geoffrey Hoyle, another Cambridge alum, is the son of Cambridge astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle, who is famous for having coined the term Big Bang, as in Big Bang Theory. And finally, we had some suggestions for how best 
to combat the various issues presented by AI. Is that right? Yes, that's right. John suggested that we need to regulate the marketplace to make sure there isn't just one company with lots of power and control. But we need to do this on a national and international scale. Naomi mentioned the idea of a COP26, but for AI. Yeah, COP26 is the UN conference on climate change where representatives from many countries get together and determine what to do about climate change. Beth suggested that we need to begin to inform people from a young age about how platforms like Facebook work behind the scenes and about the implicit ethics of AI. But it isn't just enough for the public to be informed. They also need to be involved in the decisions that large corporations are making about AI and how it's used. And Richard suggested that we need to ask ourselves some of the big, tough questions. What if we perfected an artificial general intelligence? What would that look like? What would we want it to do for us? Basically, this forced us to ask ourselves, who are we? What makes us happy? And what is a good life? Well, that really is the end. Stay tuned for our next episode about the future of reproduction. Before then, please fill out our survey. You can find the link in the episode description to tell us what you think of the podcast. Be honest. And make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. A good one, ideally. And as ever, please spread the mind over chatter word by telling... Just tell everyone. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Richard Watson, Beth Singler and John Zerilli, and to our two fantastic behind-the-scenes helpers this series, Annie Thwaite and Charlotte Zemmel. Music was by the extremely talented Carlo Ladd and artwork by the equally talented Alex Sadler. See you next time. Bye. Bye.